This morning, we're concluding a mini-series that is three parts, and we're actually doing it in three parts. Now, someone needs to see the miracle in that. I mean, Keith has often said, we're going to have a four-part series. Six years later, (laughs) huh? So, we said, he said, somebody said, we're going to have a three-part introduction to Exodus. Today is the third part. Next week, you're starting with Exodus next week or you're going to skip out? You're still not doing Exodus next week? So that give me two more weeks to do what I wanted to do. You rough, brother. You real rough, stingy. <clears throat> so some kind of way, I think on Easter morning, he will begin Exodus. But this morning is the third part, and what we want to make sure is that as we go into this book of the Old Testament, that we not see Exodus as disconnected or independent of what has already occurred. Because you see in the 50 chapters of Genesis, that is the history of God's purpose for humanity and the beginning of his fulfilling that purpose, which will continue into Exodus and flow all the way through to the last book of the Old Testament, which is called what is it? The book of the Old Testament, which is what? Malachi. And then we'll come to a crescendoing revelation in the birth of God's man who will restore God's purpose and bring us all into the kingdom of God. Now, someone said I couldn't teach the entire Bible in a few words. There it is. And so it's critical that we understand and see what is happening and the connection. Because when you get into Exodus, it's not God just, oh, well, let me think. What am I doing and why? Everything that is happening in Exodus has already been prepared for and has been announced through prophecy. And so you remember the first week, Evan began with God's identity and God's purpose for humanity in Genesis 1 through 2. And then you remember he reminded us of God's purpose being interrupted in Genesis chapter 3. But in spite of man's sin, God is ready. Do you ever notice that God is never caught, caught short? That he's not saying, oh, what am I going to do now? God is ready. He is ready because of his sovereign decree Not just he knows something, he decrees what is happening. And he says, I'm ready. And so in Genesis 3.15, he promises a deliverer who will fulfill his purpose. And then last week, Jason took up the second part of this series, and he talked to us about God entering into a covenant with Abraham promising that through Abraham and his son, God would bless all the nations of the world. And he also showed that part of this process or getting to the place of blessing all the nations, he's not just going to bless everybody and we're all blessed, but God will follow a very carefully prescribed plan that he has designed and that he is inaugurating and moving toward his conclusion. And so, he promises Abraham in Genesis 17, he says, I'm going to first, before I bless all the nations of the world, first, in order to get to that place, I'm going to lead the people God's people, Abraham's seed, into a foreign land where they will suffer affliction for 400 years and be made into a great people. And then 
I will take them out of the land into my land. So you see, that's what God has told Abraham. There's a covenant. This is my purpose. But here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take your family. I'm going to put them into a land where they will be sojourners and they will suffer. That will be Egypt. And then after about 400 years of suffering, I'm going to bring them out of the land. Not just bring them out of the land, but bring them out with a distinct purpose. God always brings us out in order to bring us in too. Keith, I think, or someone talked about that not too long ago. There's always this very specific purpose of God. I'm going to bring you back into my land. So this morning, in the chapters that we'll be discussing, we're going to look at how God moves that purpose, that promise that he gave to Abraham forward into fruition of getting Abraham's family into this land. And we're going to see how God uses Joseph to take the people into that foreign land. And as we look at this story of Joseph, I mean, how many of you, I think, what is it called? The Amazing Technicolor Dream Code or something like that? How many of you saw that? Okay. Please put all that out of your mind. No, no, really. It's just not the biblical story. Put it out of your mind. And in fact, I know that these may be exciting things to listen to, but when our children begin to see this kind of stuff, and then they read the word. Guess which one they're going to remember better. They're going to remember the distortion over the truth. Can you say amen? Am I right? Yes. So protect your children and provide for them. And for goodness sakes, don't let them watch this foolishness out there, these lies. But see, this is not just another story about another man that God is going to use to do something. In this story is contained the revelation of whom Joseph represents. This is a real story with real people, real activities, and with a real result. But it's more than just a story. It's one of these stories that we find in the Old Testament repeatedly throughout the many books of the Old Testament that have a greater significance than what you see on the surface. And that significance is this. This man, Joseph, in who he is in his person and what he does and how he does it is an Old Testament representation or revelation of the coming Redeemer. It's about the person and work of Christ. Because you see, we see in Colossians 2.17 that Christ is himself the fulfillment of what God gives us in the Old Testament. So as we listen to this, we want to listen in a double way. We want to see what the practical daily in your activities, the difficulties, the successes, the things I understand, the things I don't understand, the things I like, the things I don't like, the confusion, the clarity. We want to see all that. But seeing that, we don't want to make that our final understanding because we want to see behind the scenes that God is saying, what you see here is a shadow, is a whispering of another man who will deliver my people from their bondage. Father, how much we are in need of understanding your word. And Father, we can't do it through intellectual activity. But Father, as we read and study and meditate, we need and depend upon revelation from your spirit. So Father, would you lead us to study, to read, to meditate, to ponder, to memorize? 
But Father, in doing so, not counting upon those things, but counting upon asking for and receiving revelation of the Lord Jesus in all of your word. Father, make it so this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me summarize Joseph's life. And in doing so, this is a summary. There are going to be some things we're going to leave out. And I said that as we look at Joseph's life, we're looking at the life of another man. So, let's identify Joseph's life and see if we can see another person in this. Joseph was the beloved son of his father. He was rejected by his brothers. He was sold by his brethren and cast into a pit to die. He was lifted up out of the pit. And finally, he was given authority to rule the world. So you see, this story of what is in this man's life and the way God uses him is the story that anticipates the Redeemer who will come. And in Joseph, we see the gospel. In the Old Testament, we see the activity of the gospel as God's only means of delivering his people from the house of bondage and bringing them into his own house to be with him forever. <clears throat> so as we look at Joseph's life in chapters 37 to 50, hmm, how long are we going to be here? I want to do so to make sure that we look at it through the lenses of the gospel. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to spend most of the time in chapter 37 and then skip through pretty quickly and summarize and then spend a little more time in chapter 41, I think it's 45, and then 50. So let's begin with chapter 37. If you're there, let's see what's happening. In verses 1 to 3 of Genesis chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. Now, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to his father about them. Now, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. These three verses set the stage for everything else that will happen. And these three verses is the seed of all that God will do to use Joseph for the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. You see, now again, on the surface, what is happening? Joseph is entrusting his favorite son with the welfare of his brothers. This is the surface. Now, it's interesting, you know, when we read commentators about these stories in the Bible, it's interesting how many chastise Jacob for having a favorite. <gasps> oh, you have a favorite. They chastise Joseph for what he's going to do as this favorite. <gasps> You've given him, Jacob, something that you didn't get. Oh, how shame, shame. You see, today, that's intolerable in our world, isn't it? But see, the Bible doesn't criticize Jacob. Now, I can't tell you Jacob's natural reasoning for this. But whatever it is, there is the will of God being displayed here, and there is something about Joseph that God is showing us through Jacob's favoritism and through giving him this special robe. 
So again, we must see past what is natural and see the supernatural in this. And so is God using Jacob's weakness for, and propensity to have a favorite? But who gave Jacob these weaknesses and created Jacob in the womb? Who created Jacob with this kind of capacity? He's doing the Father's will. So what is God doing here? What is God doing in investing and entrusting into this young man, this beloved of his father who has been given this coat? What is God doing? Well, I think we could summarize it in what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 5, 19. For God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God was in Christ doing everything that was necessary to bring his people out of bondage to their sin, out of bondage to Satan's rule, in order to bring them into his presence to live with him forever. That's what God is doing in Joseph. He's using Joseph as his means to deliver his people into the land that he will give them. You know, what a beautiful coat. Now, there's been a lot of speculation what it looked like, this and that. Don't know. Doesn't really matter. But see, what is the significance of the coat? The significance of the coat is that in giving Joseph this coat, Jacob is investing, or vesting, if you would, royal favor upon his son. He's saying that by putting this coat on you, this robe, I am saying to the family, you are now the one who inherits. You are the one who's the head of the family. And the family's welfare and future will be upon your shoulders and through you. <gasps> Have we heard this anywhere else? Is this not the gospel? Now, this, the problem here is not speaking about a thousand things for every verse. But how many of you can remember just so many verses coming to your mind as I've just shared that? You see, God was showing us a picture of his beloved son. Remember Matthew 17, 5, the men are on the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is transfigured, and the voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. He's showing us a picture of his beloved son who also wore a royal robe. Remember the great royal robe in Revelation 1:13. This great robe of righteousness and of royalness. This son who was also entrusted with the welfare of his brothers. And who also, like Joseph, gave a bad report to his father. So it's not that Joseph is just tattletale, tattletale. It's that Joseph is acting righteously and obeying his father's will and doing good for his father and eventually good for his brothers. Because Jesus gave a bad report to God about us. They're condemned, they're sin, they're in bondage. And so the Father, knowing that, then entrusts our salvation into the hands of his Son. Would we have expected Jesus to say, you know, Father, I have visited, I've been down there. They're not bad. How many of us consider Jesus as a tattletale when he tells on us? Thank God he tells. Amen? Thank God he tells. Thank God Joseph tells because it's an integral part of God's plan. So when you hear these other comments, he shouldn't have said this, he should have been more wise, he was a tattletale, for goodness sakes, divest your mind of this foolishness because this is God at work. 
This is God at work. In verses 4 to 36, we see the reaction of the brothers. I mean, this goes well with us. How many of us like somebody to, to pull these stunts on us? So verse 4 and 5. But when the brothers saw that their father loved him more, whoo, can you imagine that? More than all his brothers, they, what? Hated him. Hated him. Look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Good night, Joseph. They already hate you. Why don't you keep your big mouth shut? Now, what's the content of this dream that caused them to hate him so much? Look at verses 6 through 11 tell us. He says, I've had a dream. And this is a God dream, not just an any dream. And brother, let me tell you what I've dreamed. You see, he's speaking prophecy. He's speaking the word of God. He's revealing the will of God to them. This is just not some kid crowing about what he's heard and seen in a dream. Here is God's man speaking forth the revelatory prophecy of God to his brothers. Don't see it, just he had a dream and he told it somebody. Guess what? Your grain, remember these, you know, is going to bow down to my grain. And that's not all of it. Barry, the suns and the star and the moon and the heavens all going to bow down to me. Now, how many of us, if one of our relatives or whatever told us that, are going to be excited? Oh, great. We're going to get to bow down to Joseph. I mean, he's a kid. He's 17 years old. He's a kid. Some of his brothers are 20 years older or so, you know? Who are you? You're going to rule over us, and the heavens are going to bow to you? You need to see somebody about this. But listen to the reaction of another group of brethren who, when they heard the prophetic words of Jesus to them, when he opened up the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and read to them the great purpose of God, and he closed it and he said, in your hearing this day, this scripture is fulfilled. What? You mean to tell us that you are the anointed Savior, sovereign King, that we're going to bow down to you? Same thing. Same thing. And so Luke 4.28 says, And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him, Jesus, out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. Verses 13 to 14, the father sends his beloved son to determine the welfare of his brothers. And you see, it's interesting. Joseph already knows that his life may be in jeopardy. But when the father says, I'm sending you down to check on the welfare and deal with the welfare and the issues in, my, in your brother's lives and my children, Joseph says, well, you know, you don't understand how bad. Joseph does what? Yes, sir. He's going to do the father's will. He obeyed. What would happen in this church if all the men of this church obeyed this way? Can somebody amen that? So Joseph, verse 17, went after his brothers and found them in Dotham. You remember, Jesus was also the obedient son of the Father, John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. See, Jesus has 
been directed by the Father to check on our welfare. Verses 18 to 22, what was the result of Joseph's words? What was the result? Oh, thank you, Joseph. Thank you for caring for us so much. Thank you that you were helping us and you're going to be helping to maintain the family. It's going to be good. No. They conspired against him to kill him. Are you following me? Do you see where that is? What was the result of Jesus' life? Of his ministry for the welfare of his people? Matthew 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how they to destroy him. Almost word for word. Verse 23, so they stripped him of his robe. Oh, you think you're royal? You think you're somebody? We're taking the robe off. We are divesting you of all of your pomp and circumstance. And we're going to show you who's in charge and who's royal and who is not royal. And in Matthew 27, 28, and they stripped Jesus. Remember, they took the robe. They took it. In verses 26 to 28, they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. In Matthew 26, 15, and they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. Do you see something more than just the life of an Old Testament man here? Do you see the clear picture in no other single individual in the Old Testament does so much come together to picture the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. He is unique among all the Old Testament characters. And they took Joseph, verse 24, and they threw him into a pit in which there was no water. You know, why did the Holy Spirit tell us there was no water in the pit? I mean, Billy, who cares? I mean, who cares? You see, there's no word in the Bible that God carelessly puts in there. Every word has meaning and application and purpose. See, Zechariah 9, 11 says this, because of the blood of my covenant with you, because of my relationship with you and yours with me, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit, from the grave. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 4, we see Jesus was buried. It was a picture of being buried, of being put to death. In verses 31 to 32, Joseph's bloodied robe is presented to the Father. Remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, what did he say? This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. And if you were to go to chapter 9 of Hebrews, you would see that the blood of the everlasting covenant is taken in the heavenly sanctuary, not made with hands, into the heavenly sanctuary. So that the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross, he himself, as the high priest, did in the Holy of Holies once a year, taking the blood into the most holy place. He himself, as this risen man, takes his blood into the holy place in the heavens, and God declares it as satisfied, having paid for our sin. And as a result, we're here today. Verse 36, and the Midianites sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of his guard. Now, the message of the gospel in these verses is this. The rejection and the suffering of the beloved son is God's means of saving the family. Listen to these words in Isaiah 53. He was despised and he was rejected by men. And see if you don't see Joseph in this as well as the Lord Jesus. 
He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was cut off out of the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Yet it was the will of Yahweh, of the Lord, to crush him. That's the gospel. Are you here this morning and you have never heard that someone has taken your place in punishment upon the cross so that the punishment that you deserve you do not ever have to experience. Because on the shoulders of this man rested all the iniquity of all his people for all time. And when this great man died, he summoned up all of the strength that was in his broken, bleeding body. And what did he say? It is finished. Sin in my people is finished. No more dominion and under the servitude of sin. The bondage of my people is over. If you're here today and you have never made a connection, you've never decided, wanted, to receive the forgiveness of God through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Do it now. You feel the Holy Spirit in you saying, you need to be saved. You need to repent. You need to confess. You need to come to me. Do it now. That's the Holy Spirit telling you now. So now I want to talk about not the suffering, but the exaltation of this man. The next 12 chapters are the account of how Joseph comes to be the ruler of the world in Egypt in order to have his family move into the land fulfilling God's promise to Abraham that they will be in a foreign land for 400 years. So now God's ready to implement the plan. In chapter 39, Joseph is tempted, you remember, to sin with Potiphar's wife. But he doesn't sin. Well, where have we heard that before? That Jesus was tempted to sin, but what? But was without sin. For we do not have a high priest in Hebrews 4.15 who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted even as we are, yet without sin. Joseph did not sin. Therefore, he was able in his obedience to God to continue to be the gospel man who accomplishes the purpose of God. Why could Jesus go to the cross and bear our sin? Why? Not only because he is the son of God in this man, Jesus, but also he is the obedient son and as the obedient son, he has fulfilled every bit of righteousness for us and on our behalf. And as a consequence, God can lay on him the unrighteousness of his people because he has none of his own. And he can bear our unrighteousness into the grave. What happened when Joseph said no? He was thrown into prison. Thrown into prison. This is the next step of God's redemptive plan, chapter 40. So by now, Joseph is in prison for 11 years. He's 17, 
gets thrown in a pit, taken out, sold to the Midianites, goes into Egypt, Potiphar buys him. His wife says, hey, hey, hey. Joseph says no. She rips that robe off, and there's another robe to talk about, but that's something else. And then he winds up in prison 11 years later. Now, listen, you're suffering for righteousness. I think Second Peter has something to say about that. You're suffering for righteousness. And, and what goes through your mind? How many of you suffered when you did right? Anybody in here? Anybody? Only a couple of you will admit that. Hopefully, all of us can raise our hands. How many of you ask why? Am I the only one who asks why? Bill, do you ask why? I see you kind of, yeah, yeah, of course. All of us ask why. We ask why using different terminology, though, you see. We don't use that terminology, Steve, because we know better. Why? What's going on? When is it going to end? Imagine Joseph 11 years. Is this not a picture of Romans 8.28? How many of in this room are in 11 years of suffering, of circumstances, of difficulty, of problems, of challenges? How many are in 11 years of this? You know what I mean? What is God doing? He's at work. He's at work. He's at work. He's at work. He's preparing. He's getting ready. We're going somewhere on this. He's doing something. So what does Romans 8:28 say? For we know that God works all things according Sorry, there it is. Help me to say it now. But we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. God is at work. Where are you in your 11th year of misery in prison? And we don't mean prison to sin. If you feel that you're in prison to sin, you just need to stop sinning. Come on, come on, come on. If you're saved, God has unbolted the door. Why not walk out of the cell? Why stay around in the prison cell when God has opened the door and locked? Jesus says, I am the key. I got the keys. Nobody else. St. Peter don't got the keys. Jesus has the keys. Thank God nobody else has the keys to heaven. Can you imagine if I had the keys to heaven? <laughs> then if I had the keys to heaven and I say to the men, you need to be in Sunday school on Sunday morning, every one of you would be there. But because Jesus has them, we flip him off, and I don't need to be there. i got other things going. <laughs> you just have to say what needs to be said. Eleven years. How many of you are in 11 years now? Physical, mental, emotional, financial, relational. But God is at work. Do you see it here? Read this story over and over again and be encouraged and be emboldened and let your faith root itself in this God who is sovereign, who is powerful, and who is good. Take those three words, study them, think about them, write them down, and meditate on them. The chapter opens with Joseph's interpretation of the dreams. Remember the cupbearer and the baker. Why? Why worry about a cupbearer and a baker? Because, you see, the cupbearer is the guy who gives the Pharaoh his drink in the morning. The baker's making cookies, candies, and cakes. Well, both these guys are in trouble, so they get thrown into prison. Both have a dream, and in three days, this is not just going to happen. And Joseph said, hey, I know how to interpret dreams. Why? Because God gives them to me. God gives me the wisdom. Cupbearer, you're going to be restored in three days, and you're going to go back to Pharaoh. Good standing. Baker, you're going to be restored in three days. Great, but you're going to be hanged. 
Couldn't you give me a better interpretation, Mike, than that? I mean, could we do better with the interpretation? Why? Because, see, the next step, the next step. So, chapter 41. By the way, in chapter 40, Joseph says, by the way, when you get out, what? Remember me. Remember who told you. Chapter 41, two years later. Now, what happened to the cupbearer? I call it purposeful, God-created spiritual amnesia. Really, it wasn't God's plan for him to tell this yet. Yet. So we have two more years. Two more years. 13 years in prison when you add it. But then Pharaoh wakes up. I had a dream, and man, these two dreams are horrible. Help me, won't you help me? Verse 2, chapter 41, seven attractive and plump cows came up out of the Nile, and they fed in the reed grass. And then seven ugly and thin cows came up out of the Nile and ate up the seven attractive plump cows. Now, don't anybody see in that that being fat is God's will? (laughs) And verse 5, Seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump ears of grain. What does that mean? Well, the cupbearer remembers. Oh, 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 mm, ah. There's this Hebrew guy in the prison. He can interpret it. So the Pharaoh says, bring him in. So Pharaoh, Joseph comes before Pharaoh and interprets the dream. Now, before we move along, I think sometimes we tend to move through the Bible pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. We need to stop for a moment and look at what's happening here. Because, see, this really happened. These are events in history. Look at the unseen miracle of grace see we sometimes tend to think well if i see an eyeball pop out wow praise god and we would be thanking god if you were healed a crippled person came down and could walk great and we want to see that amen but there's something of a deeper miracle here the miracle of a god who will have his will he comes before pharaoh have you seen some of the movies of these pharaohs the splendor this man sitting on the throne and all that i mean people come before him like ah they hope he's not gonna issue a verdict of you die this high exalted man this living god so they said upon the earth this is who he is he is a living god on earth And this Hebrew slave boy comes before this mighty ruler of the world to tell him something. Do you see the miracle? Anybody see a miracle in that? Does anybody see a miracle? Does anybody see the hand of a mighty God who is sovereign, who is powerful, and who is good? If God does that then, does he and can he and will he do it now in our lives? Yes. See, when we read the Bible, we're reading it to find out who God is. So explains the two dreams. Seven years of plenty, seven famine years. And then he recommends, here's what Pharaoh really needs to do to handle this. Can you imagine, James, the audacity of telling Pharaoh how to conduct his business? And the Pharaoh says, wait a minute, this is incredible. I have a man here who is so connected to the gods, because, you know, he's not believing in one God, and is so understanding and wisdom, and he he tells me the dreams, and he tells me how to, I'm going to put him in charge. So here we have it. Here we have it. This is where God takes Joseph 
to fulfill his promise. Listen to what Pharaoh says to Joseph in 40, chapter 41, verse 40. And you shall be over my house. And when you hear that, listen to the Father's words to Jesus and about Jesus. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. I think I heard something about Matthew 28, 18 in that. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. What is happening? Joseph is now sitting in the throne of Egypt next to the Pharaoh. And the Bible says that Jesus has ascended into the heavens and sits where? At the right hand of the majesty on high, even God the Father. And Pharaoh said in verse 41, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring, remember that, the authority, and put it on Joseph's hand. And then he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. There's just so much here to see in Revelation. This man who stands before the apostle John, and when he sees it, he says, I fell to the ground as a dead man. In verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, bow the knee. What do you hear there? Bow the knee. What do you see there? What verse? Philippians 2.8. I'm sorry, 2.9. Wherefore also God has exalted whom? Christ. And has given him a name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in the heavens, things in the earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, when I see bow the knee, oh, so much comes into view. So much should come into our view. Moreover, verse 44, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. Verse 57, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because a famine was severe in all the earth. So now we're ready. I'm going to just say a couple of words about these next chapters. 42 to 45 is the encounter between Joseph and the brothers back and forth. Three different meetings or journeys. But Joseph is doing this. He's first determining the character of his brothers. Secondly, he's determining the welfare of his family. And he is determined through all of this to get the brothers and Jacob and Benjamin, his brother whom he has never seen, into Egypt. So he goes through these chapters, and you can read them. What is the purpose? Well, in verse 40, chapter 45, verse 15, Joseph finally can't take it anymore. And this august man before whom these shepherds came, whom they did not recognize, because you see, this is not only he's 30 when he hits the throne, when he comes into the throne. This is seven-plus years later. Because it had been seven years of plenty. So we have a man 40 years old or so, and he was 17 when he was thrown into the pit. Plus he has this makeup on and all this regalia. This is what the Egyptians did. You saw the films. <laughs> I mean, you, you see it. They don't get it. And finally, and they're terrified. And they bow down. They bow down. They bow down. Genesis 37 is true, isn't it? What God promises, he will produce. And Joseph can't stand anymore. And he says to them, and he reveals himself, and he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. They're coming, but they don't know, you talking about speech, Joseph, uh-oh. I told you not to do that. Well, it's your fault. Yeah, but had you not, 
He says, look, I'm here because of God. In the 11 years of our suffering that we talked about, don't be blaming others. Be looking to God. And to be saying to your soul, to your flesh, and especially to Satan, God is in this for the purpose of delivering me. Battle it out. Battle it out with the truth. Joseph in verse 11 promised to bring the family into Goshen. And he says, I there will provide for you. Chapter 46, Jacob finally gathers the whole family and into Egypt they go in order for Joseph to keep the promise of gathering the family into Goshen. Chapter 50, Jacob has died and now the brothers are worried. Is Joseph going to now get us because daddy's gone? How many of us have worried? I just did that same thing that I said yesterday I would not do. What's going to happen to me? What is the word of God in that respect? Romans 8, 1. It's not that it doesn't matter. It does matter. But the punishment and the fear of wrath has been taken away. So we can repent and be restored and walk in obedience. There is therefore, I can't hear anybody. One more time, church. Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if that doesn't ca cause you to shout, you should never watch a saint's game and open your big mouth. No, no, really. Really, if that doesn't cause shouting words when the saints win the Super Bowl this year, don't yell. <laughs> there is therefore now no condemnation for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. And the church said, hallelujah. Good night, church. Man, what words we have here. We don't want to sit here. If you're embarrassed, get over it and let's rejoice together in God over what he's done, right? Yes. So in 50, after jo Jacob is dead, Joseph reassures his brother. Brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil, man, you guys, but God. Two of the greatest words, Sidney, you'll ever hear in the Bible, but God. Read it in Ephesians 2.4, but God. This is a Ephesians 2.4 moment. God meant it for good. Romans 8.28. Do you see it? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. At last. At last. The family's in God's place. And at last, through all these years, God has his people in a place to provide for them and to grow them into a multitude from about 70 to what? One and a half, two million or whatever it was. At last. God's promise to Abraham in chapter 15 is fulfilled. We got here. Why? Because we are good. We got here. Why? Because we lucky. That word lucky should never cross the lips of a believer. It is a demonic put down of God's sovereignty. Why? Because he who has promised will keep it. What did I just quote, but in a different way? Philippians what? 1, 6. For I am persuaded of this one thing. Paul writes to the church. That he who has begun a good work, good meaning God work in you, will be faithful to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. God's promise to complete through our responsibility to persevere. God's promise to complete through our 
But where they want faithfulness to persevere. God promised that he would use Jacob to deliver the people. But it wasn't alone in just a promise. Then God promised, and then he produced through Jacob's obedience. God promised, and then he produced it through Jacob's obedience. God's will plus our responsibility wins the day. Amen? Suppose Jacob hadn't obeyed. You want me to tell you what the answer is? Suppose Jacob hadn't obeyed. The answer is, God doesn't tell us. Oh, man. I wanted to find out. He just doesn't tell us. So what? Don't go there. Just don't go there. It's not for you to know. It's one of those Deuteronomy 29, 29 issues. If you don't know what that is, you need to look it up. See, now God will grow the family into a great nation in Egypt so that at the right time, may I repeat that, at the right time, he will bring them out to himself as recorded in Exodus, which will begin in first Sunday in April. You see, this Old Testament story of God's deliverance through a man of suffering anticipates the fulfillment in the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. As a result, because of this, we will be with God forever. And he will provide for us, his family, forever in his eternal kingdom. And we shall see God face to face forever. Is this not a great God whom we serve? As we stand together, that means you can get up, I think. I believe at least one of the things that the Lord wants to make sure we're doing is this. Trust me. Trust me. I've not brought you into my family to drop you. I'm going to do anything and everything necessary to see that you persevere. I'm going to move circumstances, people in and out of your life. I'm going to cause things to be up and down. And in the midst of it, I want you to do what the Apostle Paul tells you to do in Thessalonians. Rejoice in everything. Trust me. I think it's a time at least that we should just spend a moment privately with God in the inner recesses of our own hearts and minds. And first, if you're like I am, let him know that you have been a worry wart, that you've been fearful, that you have not obeyed the way you need to. That's just so much. And to say to him, Lord, I'm asking for a greater work of your spirit because I want to be that kind of a man like Joseph. I want to be used in the delivering of your purpose for your glory. Let us just spend a moment in prayer and then Eric will close us in song. From the brightness of his glory, Jesus, the Son of God, descends, takes on the nature of a servant, 
Jesus, obedient to death. The Father will to crush him as a sacrifice for sin. He satisfied God's justice. And in victory rose again. You are highly exalted, name above all names, worthy of all praise. You are reigning in glory, Jesus, your Once crucified, no longer. The angels never cease to worship Jesus in heaven glory. The right hand of the Father. To him belongs the power.
Peter read this verse earlier. Listen to it again. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we declare that now, God, with the angels, Lord, with the Christians around this planet, Lord, we declare that you are Lord of Lords. Lord, and we ask that you'd help us this week, God, to live in light of your glory, to live in light of your Lordship. Lord, not to be more aware and have ourselves be more governed by the problems that we see around us, our own weakness in ourselves, or we see that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that you are powerful. Our Savior, we love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.